Blog Talk Radio. If I speak for your followers and I speak for your ex-followers and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mom and dad, don't talk to your mom and dad, that's bad. I remember sitting there wishing I could just scream out loud and beg for help. But I knew if I did that, I would never see Mark again. This is the thing about real life. You can't experience the great things without the bad things. I felt like it would probably do better off if we didn't exist. And, um, you know, came up with a plan on, on how to end it. We talk about seven-year-old child, mm-hmm. even, if, even if he's referring to actually an adult. So let's say we change that to an adult. You know, the woman shudders because the man keeps her even passionately. The fact is that she shudders. You do a big apology to me and give me my kids back. I'm still shocked by the evil. I, 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 yes, even to this day. When I see a video of a former friend or family member, I'm like, This is pure evil at work. Hello and welcome to another Come Get Some Extra Scientology edition. Today with uh, Marie Bellheimer. Uh, After Marie was on on Scientology in the aftermath of Blair, Remini, and Mike, um, I almost immediately found her and friended her on social media. And I found her to be a very pleasant and kind woman, but we didn't interact a whole lot. Uh, Her story has always touched me. And I am proud to finally be able to uh, give you part one of our conversation. Here it is. Okay, on today's show, I have the sweet and kind, and I'm so sorry it took me so long to get her on the show from season two of Scientology in the Aftermath. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, Marie Bilheimer. Absolutely, thank you. All right. So uh, just to confirm, you are a second-generation uh, Scientologist, or you were a second-generation Scientologist. You're not, but you were. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes. So I was born and raised in Scientology. My parents had met at the Edmonton org, um, and I was the fourth of their children. Um, yes, yeah, so pretty much my whole life was just in Scientology. The whole family was in. Yeah, well, my mom, my dad, and all of us kids, and then my stepdad as well. And how, how many siblings did you have? Three. Three siblings. Okay, so it's four of you. All right, that's right. Okay, so we talk about this a lot, and I think there was um, there's commonly a conception, a misconception that when because your parents weren't always Sea Org, right? No, my parents were on staff in. Edmonton for a bit, uh, but they were never in the York. Okay, so when you have parents and staff, oftentimes the conception is that, or the uh, the conception, oftentimes the impression is that uh, you lived almost normal child lives, but it, from what you described to me, you didn't. Well, I didn't, but I wouldn't attribute it to really the staff period because um, by the time I was born, my parents weren't staff members any longer, um, but my whole life, my mom especially was very committed and involved with Scientology and doing Scientology services. Um, 
we moved from Canada to LA when I was four, um, and in 1988, and um, she essentially she moved here somewhat to be closer to our father, and then also um, so she could do the state health special briefing course because she had reached the levels that she had reached at the org in Canada, and they, she couldn't do any, anything further there because she'd gotten as high as she could at that, at that level. Um, and as soon as we moved here, she was pretty much on the briefing course. That's eventually where she ended up meeting our stepdad. And um, my whole life was either on every weekend all full time or every evening. So there were definitely periods of um, less parental supervision and just experiences of the family in general together. Did you feel did you feel the relationship you had in Canada with your mom uh, distancing as you came to California less and less you had a a, a real a, a, a mother figure? It's it's funny because it was something that I was actually talking about with I think my therapist, which was that when I was thinking about memories of my mom and the nurturing moments and when I, what I recall of her being close to me was more when we were in Canada before we had left and moved to L.A. Because even then, when we when we were in L.A., she, for the most part, either worked for Scientology private schools or she owned her own Scientology private schools. Um, and those were the schools that our family, that my siblings and I all attended, which meant, yes, our mom was there and she could be more in physical contact with us rather than going to, like, a 9-to-5 job. But at the same time, we were a lot of times considered, like, faculty or we actually were part of the faculty. Um, or you had to kind of maintain a certain, like, image even there. So it was where it was, like, you're part of the family business so you have to you know be right all of the students you have to you know set a good example for everybody and um it wasn't the same relationship of just going out and doing family things with your mom if you're going out and doing something with 30 other kids on a field trip that's not like yeah i'm going to you know the zoo with my mom and getting a lollipop or something it's like there's 30 other children there Wow. Okay. So you're like staffed by association, your family, your your, your siblings, and you. Yeah, yeah, So the, uh, yeah, I think you described it as you guys. So she did the schools. It's not like she rented out space in a building. This was like out of your homes and your living spaces. For the most part, there there were periods when she rented other locations, um, but that was either early on or um, later after I had already pretty much grown out of it or when I was in the spirit already. So from the ages, I would say, eight until I was about 13 or 14, the school was within our home. Okay. Yeah. 
were you ever around other children, children who went to regular schools, children who weren't in Scientology? Very, very rarely. I remember it was just sort of like, and now thinking about it, it most of the people I knew, most of the kids I knew, most of the adults I knew, um, not even through school but other um, activities, um, they were all Scientologists. So you wouldn't really know somebody who wasn't a Scientologist, and if you did, you would think that they were kind of weird. <laughs> now, what's wrong with them? Yeah. <laughs> well, and it wasn't, it was like, that was kind of trained into you. So you were prepped for, like, questions about Scientology, but you were also prepped to think that we have all the answers, they're in a trap, they don't know it, and we're, we're, saving, we're saving the world, so, you know, we essentially are better than, than everybody else. Was everybody else the sort of 1.1 out ethics had no idea what they were doing? That's basically what you're saying? Sort of, like, or, you know, the PTS to the middle class, um, or just uneducated, like, but not uneducated in terms of, like, society or real world, uneducated in terms of not knowing Scientology. Right, so... So you just don't know what you're missing, and you need to be cleared, if at all possible. Yeah. And, and everybody's just automatically a P. So everybody's a PTS, basically. Just sort of not 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 technically, but that's basically a mindset. Pretty much. I mean, it is a focus. Yeah. 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 Now. I hear you now. Okay, good. Sorry about that. That's okay. I don't know if you're talking. So, yeah, I mean, there's even, there's, um, there's the PTS A to J, which is like a list of various PTS types. And when you first, I believe when you first go on the course, um, but especially when you are joining the York, they run down those that PTS list and you have to get a metered interview <clears throat> to determine if you are any one of those. And if you are, you have to handle or resolve the situation before you're allowed to go on the course or in the um, And I can't recall all of them off the top of, the head, off the top of my head, but some of them are, um, you know, if you're connected to anyone in the media or if you've ever worked for anyone in the media or for newspapers or... Um, that sort of thing. If you're open-minded, um, if you're involved in other practices, that kills me. If you're open-minded, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but they have a different. But that's the other thing. They have their own definitions and language for them. Oh, sorry, something just smashed down in my car. Um, you okay? So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just had a a metal water bottle that flew off of my... Oh, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Scary. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you're open-minded, it doesn't it doesn't mean the same as it would to a non-scientologist where you're like, that's good, you should be open-minded. There's a negative connotation to it. Hmm. Which 
do want, so I remember the first time when I was reading these policies and, like, looking through the list, and you had to, like, attest that you weren't open-minded, and I remember reading it and then having to look up the definition and thinking, like, there's something wrong with that? Like, aren't we supposed to be open-minded by, like, accepting Scientology's beliefs? Right. Okay, so what does open-minded mean in Scientology? It means... Gosh, I wish I had the actual definition. It it means, at least what it meant to me was that you are open to other information and you'll you'll be accepting of other information and knowledge and practices that are not associated with Scientology. But that so, that is right. open minded. <laughs> I know, but you're sort of flippant. Like it's so a different take on it. What's that? Like a different take on it. Like it's a different. It's a spin. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm gonna have to call you sometime off the air and do some road, word clearing with you, so I understand these things when I read them. <laughs> um. Oh yeah. <laughs> my goodness. All right. All right. So. So you went through all that. And uh, how old were you when you got into the Sea Org? I was 15 when I joined the Sea Org. You were 15. And you did this, yes. you wanted this, is that right? You wanted to join the Sea Org, you wanted to be the best? Kind of. It, a lot of other friends of mine had already started joining. Um, my, one of my older sisters had joined, um, and... Well, she had joined and left already. She was only in for about a year. And then Nicola, my other sibling, has also joined and was still in. Um, and when I first started getting recruited, I was being recruited for LA or staff to replace somebody there that was supposed to be moving up to the Sea So they were they were recruiting me for staff, but they kind of turn into a CR recruitment after a couple of days. And then, you know, they give you a lot of propaganda, um, and especially with someone who's been born and raised in Scientology, it's very easy to get them to believe that what you're telling them is true because you, you already believe everything in Scientology that you're told or taught. Um, and when they're telling you, you know, there's these secret societies and they come up with these, like, weird conspiracy theories and to kind of scare you into how bad the world is. And um, and I was going around with Brandon Faust, my recruiter, for a couple of days, and the pure life that he was kind of showing me was completely different than what, what is actually there because I was just, you know, riding around with him in his car and he would be stopping, you know, at local Scientology schools, basically looking for who he could pick off um, and pointing out to me who would be good candidates and um, and then he'd go out, you know, go to a restaurant and eat and he didn't really have a schedule and he could just sort of do whatever he wanted. And at that time, I was very involved in dancing. I was doing 
dance classes and teaching dance classes every day of the week. Um, and that was something that I wanted to do as a career. Um, and eventually I decided, okay, I'm going to join staff. And I thought, okay, I could work that out and still have, like, you know, the other part of my life going on. And then I was in my last dance class and I was standing there and I thought, well, why would I be wasting any time doing anything else when the most important thing in the world is wearing the planet and getting getting Scientology out there? So that's when I decided to join the Sea Org instead. Wow, they just take everybody out of their dreams. I hear, I've heard this story so many times where they had goals and they had things they wanted to do, and the way they, the way it's told to me is, you know, well, you have the next lifetime to be that dancer. Um, well, and I was told, oh yeah, you can go to Golden Era Productions because you are so trained and skilled that, like, you'll get promoted up there, and you can definitely do. Oh, I write poems all the time. I, I do my music. Like, I'm an artist too, but I'm in the theory, that sort of thing. Um, and that was definitely not the case. Right, I mean, there are people who, oh gosh, you just, um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank, but there's people I know of who, uh, Karen Presley's ex-husband, like, he could have been a a real composer, and now he does the little piano keyboard at the events, and that's all he does. (laughs) So, it's like a a crush, crush their dreams. And when I, even when I was about, I must have been 15, I believe, there was um, an audition for a scholarship at Cal Arts. And I told my mom that I wanted to, I wanted to do it because I could get a scholarship and go to college, which would otherwise be impossible. And it was an art college for dance. Um, but even though my mom and my stepdad were educators that, owned their own school that were, you know, teaching all of these children, they were very opposed to higher education and to me going to college. Um, And even if, though it wasn't even like a regular college, it was an art college, and and I was going to try to get a scholarship for myself, my mom wouldn't let me go. Because it's not helping Scientology? Yeah, well, because why would you be wasting your time with an education and a college that's going to fill your brain full of false information when you can be spending that time going up the bridge? Anything not course material is is a distraction from the real goal. And it's a waste of time, and you have a potential for getting pulled out of it because you're surrounded by so many non-scientologists all the time. Right, it's kind of an underlying thing. That's not something that someone's going to say to you in Scientology or something that they're going to make apparent, but that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, they won't out, outrightly say that, but it's, it's behind, it's in the background all the time. Do you think being, you've been there, you've been one of those one of those folks, being in that position, do you think you knew that you were doing that when you did that, or do you think you were really just focused on the word of LRH, were you just a true believer, or do you think you knew that you were telling people because if they went the other way, they were going to get pulled out by a PTS? No, I don't think that I, I felt like I was, I felt like I believed it, but 
you want to believe it too. And um, I feel like there were definitely points where in the your I was in the beginning I was regularly taking the the liberties, the libs that you're supposed to have every two weeks on Sunday. Um, and it would die down and I would take off here and there, but eventually I started stopping myself from doing that because I was feeling a pull to the to my family and to the outside world because every time I would come back I would feel this regret that I wanted to be with them and so I stopped taking that time and, and seeing them because I felt like that was a distraction and um, I shouldn't be having those thoughts of wanting to possibly leave. Yeah, I mean, again, in your case, in the case of any second, third generation, it's all you've known, and there's always that hanging over you. I mean, you know nothing else. Yeah. It's all you know. It's all your friends and family. So even if you question or want to get out of something, you don't have anyone to turn to because, even all of the adults, like if I were to go to, you know, family, friends, or anybody, they would have kind of steered me back towards Scientology. Okay. So you were a you were a good Scientologist. You followed the rules. You didn't get in trouble, did you? Not really. Um, even before I joined the Sierra there'd be kids, you know, getting alcohol somehow or having parties and then everyone would, you know, someone would find out and they don't have to go in and do ethics handling. But um, I pretty much steered clear of that. Um, and when I was in the Sea Org, or when I was on the EPF, I was groomed to go straight to CMO, the Commodore's Messenger Org. Um, and pretty much right off of that, I witness people getting various punishments or ethics um, handling, and I just saw and decided that's not something I want. Right. <laughs> so I'm going to just stay in line and not not get in trouble. So was it more fear than just being an overachiever or a little bit of both? What was it with you? Um, a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> Very All right. They wanted you. Yeah. <laughs> they definitely wanted you in there. Yeah. All right. Whatever I was doing. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Always, always be the best. Even you know, don't. Well, don't be the best cult person, but you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> so, so a little bit of both. You were afraid to get in trouble, and um, how did you? Uh, I mean, this is right around what, fifteen, sixteen years old. You're meeting Aaron, right? So they had all of these mostly cadet children that they took from the ranch, pack ranch, um, put them through the EPS, and then they put them into a training corps. Um, and they were all on full-time um, courses getting trained to be auditors. Um, and so Aaron was one of those, um, but he was specifically assigned to CMO. Um, so you'd be assigned to various orgs, and then once you finished the TCC, you would be 
then posted in whatever org you were assigned to. Um, so he eventually then was assigned to what is called the Cracker Jack Unit, um, which is part of the investigations. Um, so CMO basically, they their main purpose, I would say, is um, finding situations in lower orgs and creating programs and plans based on whatever investigation that they've done and and whatever they call it, a why finding. So whatever the why is behind the situation, um, then they create a program to fix that. Um, and so Aaron was part of that, the investigation side of it, and I was part of this group of mostly young ladies um, running around getting the programs done. Okay. Well, was it still like it, like it's described by like Lois Resors and others who have been on the uh, in the Commodores with LRH? that still young girls for the most part, the the, the younger. <laughs> yeah, most of us were kids. There were people that had been there longer, so they were a little bit older. But mm-hmm. especially if you're in CMO, you're gonna get promoted up the line as long as you're keeping your nose clean, or you're gonna get demoted and and kicked out and posted somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, I would say the age group was, God, I think there was a guy that was even like 12 or 13, um, to maybe, maybe early 20s, but we were all pretty young. Okay. Yeah. All right, so, uh, what was it that? What was it that you and Aaron had in common? Because to to hear your story on Aftermath, um, you guys were on really on different ends of the spectrum as far as dedication and as far as um, the standard you 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 lived as a Scientologist is uh, the way you practiced it. Um, if that makes sense to say, am I saying that right? I guess it's a hard it's hard it's a hard thing to address. But go ahead. For me, you also have to understand that for a long time, I pushed Aaron out of my mind, um, and especially our relationship prior to the circumstances of me leaving, I didn't really think about that relationship. It was hard to think about him without thinking about all of the tough stuff we went through. Um but that was also part of what made me realize I wasn't a Scientologist anymore was after five years of only thinking in, of him in a negative light and only thinking of what had happened um, and being told he was out ethics and a bad person and that, like, literally that he was one of the worst people that I had ever known was what he was portrayed to me as. Um, And after five years of grieving and still feeling how I did, I had to realize that I needed to change something and that Scientology hadn't helped me getting through that. And I made a conscious effort for myself to try to remember good and positive things about him um, and that's when I finally started being able to move on um, and 
when I finally realized Scientology didn't help me with this and it didn't work. And yeah, maybe when I was there, there were little things, but it wasn't real life experiences. And when it came down to a significant real life experience, they didn't have the tools to actually help a person. Right. They they boast the most ethical religion in the world. They boast that they have good marital counseling skills, and there's so much divorce rate. Um, with with Aaron being um, looked at differently by the Sea Org and by Scientology, with you being told how different he was, you guys probably didn't see each other a lot, right? We didn't. So, in the beginning, we worked in the same org. We worked in the same office um, and, and pretty close together. And he was already pretty well trained um, and I was like this little green newbie um, <laughs> and we would we'd do like the tone peel spotting together and stuff like that which was it was so confusing to me and then you're not really supposed to like tell anybody how to do any of the drills or things like if you don't understand it then you need to go and clear your misunderstood words or find what you don't understand but no one else is supposed to be, like, explaining anything to you. Right. But I would go out with Aaron, and we'd be on the street. So it's really, it's, I don't know if you've ever seen these people, but like, there'll be two of them, and they're standing on a street corner, you know, in their CR uniforms or whatever, with, like, a clipboard maybe or something, and they're yep. literally just standing and looking at people and assigning what level on the tone scale that person is. You guys are judging people as they walk by? Absolutely. Just just regular citizens. Yeah. And, okay. and you sometimes you will have like questionnaires where you're you'll go out and you'll ask them specific questions to to get in a conversation to try to get what their tone level is. And then there's parts of the drill where you have to match the person's tone level. So if the person is angry then you're supposed to get angry at them. Weird. It's very weird, um, but that and it's something that I did right off of the EPF, and it's some, it's like you're instantly taught to judge any outsider hmm. and and anybody else. So you're looking part of your auditor, auditor training is looking at somebody and deciding what tone level they are. So wow, you're just just judging that people, way. Yeah, it's very weird. Um, so that was kind of my first experience with. The, Aaron, um, <laughs> okay. and he was always just, he was very goofy, he loved to dance, so, and we had, like, a Perfect. private CMO dining room, and he'd throw on, like, Saturday Night Fever and just, like, bust out some moves, and I just thought he was funny, and... <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, so, eventually, I, it's kind of, the dating situation in the theater is weird because literally while I was still on the EPF I had people sending me notes of like hey once you're done you know maybe we should date because you're looking for like you're looking for your spouse because you know that like it has to be within that pool and anyone newly coming off the EPF is like fresh meat you're going to find the, like right <laughs> if you've already gone through if you've already gone through everybody that's already there anyone new is going to be, you know, 
someone's going to try to snatch him up. <clears throat> Interesting. So, and, and the other aspect is that it's the only somewhat slight connection to a intimate and real relationship outside of being on post. Even though it's not normal in any way, you at least have another person that you can potentially confide in or you can just have that downtime of, like, kind of being somewhat normal. Um, and so I feel like there's various reasons, and I'm sure a lot of people had different reasons, too. The other aspect is that you can get moved out of, you know, the, the general fear of birthing and right. your own dorm with your spouse. Um, and then there's the sexual aspect of it, of you can't do heavy petting and beyond is not allowed, and you'll go to the RPF. So, um, and then having a bunch of teenagers running around with, you know, all their hormones going on, it's like... Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Do you, do you think yeah. there's a rush to get married at that age because of this, this components? I think there is, but also you lose your age when you join the PR too. So your age isn't considered right. anything. Right. We're all because billions of years old. Yeah. And, yeah, so it doesn't really matter. And then, like, you kind of strip away your previous life and your family and stuff like that. So it was like it didn't matter to me that I was engaged at 16, you know. And I even told my mom, like, when she was was planning on, like, how she would tell her non-scientology family, I was like, yeah, but how old were people, you know, when grandma's generation, when they were getting married? Like, people were getting married young back then, right, you know? (laughs) And my mom's like, yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe there was a reason why that changed over time, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, uh, clearly you had something special with Aaron, but because of where you were and where he was, you were made to look at him differently. And when you look back, it sounds to me when I hear you talk about it, that's not who you are and that's not where your heart was, but you made yourself think these things because that's what you were taught to think. Yeah, well, I didn't actually, until he had committed suicide, I didn't still look at him as a bad person, but I guess that was my downfall to them. Um, I, it was a real struggle for me because I loved him, and I constantly felt like he was fucking up, sorry, Um, and doing, doing all these things that went against what we were trained and supposed to do, um, and I just didn't get why why he couldn't sort of fall in line, you know. Um, was he bringing you down? Was he making you look bad? Was that something that was going through your head? All the time. Yeah. yeah. I was constantly I was constantly getting embarrassed, and it was it was something where. I felt in a motherly position a lot of times with him. Hmm. Um, and 
I was trying to take care of him and help him, but we had been separated in terms of where we were located. So I really couldn't keep an eye on him very well. Um, and then I was sent to flag, so we had even less connection. Um, and during that time, I was there, I think, about nine months. We could barely speak to each other because of the time difference and that I was on full-time training, and he was um, on the examiner position, which if anybody knows that position, you don't get very many breaks. So um, I think we maybe had two or three conversations while I was gone for nine months. Oh, God. And I could hear in his voice that something was going on, and I couldn't see anything. It's like he wanted to tell you something, but he didn't know how to tell you. Also, he didn't know what you would do with that information. Yeah, and I'm at, like, the Mecca, right, getting trained and being, like, this hardcore, in ethics, dedicated Scientologist and peer member, and he's, like, going the other way. Yeah, I don't know how you're supposed to maintain a relationship in that environment. I always hear these stories like this where they don't, people don't see their spouses. You don't. And then when I returned, he was still the examiner. And we the, the time that you would spend together would be on Sunday mornings when you're supposed to have, it's called CSP, the clean ship program. It's supposed to be like you're doing your laundry and you're cleaning your dorm and um, but people would spend it to, like, just take off, and you'd go, we'd walk down to the farmer's market, or we'd go over to the Hollywood Highland Mall, or go get lunch somewhere, or go have brunch with my parents or something, um, which was all illegal activity. Um, wow. But, um, but he, his schedule got adjusted where we weren't off at that same time. So not only did we not have those couple of hours, which we weren't supposed to be spending that way to spend together, we would only look each other at maybe 11 or 12 at night when we had to go to bed, and then we jump up in the morning and get ready and go to muster. So there was very little personal time for a while, and that we were already maritally struggling. Um then there were periods where he he wouldn't come home. He would just stay at PAC or, I don't know, maybe he was elsewhere. I have no idea. Um, because either he couldn't get a ride or it was too difficult or whatever the excuses were. It was right. already it was easy for him to just stay there, you know, in, in an extra bed somewhere or whatever it was. Do you think they they knew, do you think when you do things like you were doing when you guys were going to the mall and doing these things that you shouldn't be doing, do you think they knew that and rather than punish you, they just changed the schedules? Um, no, because so that activity was something that a lot of people were doing, and it was sort of like you'd see somebody out, or you'd see someone, you know, you'd go down the street and get pick, picked up by your mom, so barely anyone can see you. Um, but if you saw anyone else doing it, you wouldn't report them either because you knew, like, we're in the same boat. Like. Right. <laughs> everybody's going to report everybody. Um, There's nobody's going to win. Yeah. And the schedule change was just because his senior wanted to spend his Sunday mornings with his wife. Oh, wow. Okay. So, 
yeah, it was like, I'm going to have to have, so eventually I told them, I'm like, sorry, you're going to have to budge on this because I, I don't get to see myself ever. Gosh. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there were definitely, there were aspects to things he were doing that would then reflect poorly on me, just in terms of the image thing and if if you ask the way that he did in the yard, you're going to assume, oh, that person is out ethics or they have other fish to fry or there's something going on. So by association, then I'm overlooking that being his wife and not seeing those indications and right. I have I have mutual ed ethics with him. Which when I after Aaron had passed away, I had been an executive and had access to the personnel area, all of HCO, um, and I found a report written on me directed to the RTC rep, an investigation into what my mutual ad ethics was with Aaron for not knowing what was going to happen and for missing his suicide. What? Yeah. They're, they're like already, they're already blaming you. They investigated what my mutual ad ethics was that I missed it because I had an ethics blind spot. So if you don't catch something with, some, something with someone who's very close to you, you have what they call is an ethics blind spot because you have your own ad ethics that's similar to them that you didn't catch what they were doing. Your 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 ethics, your your PTS in this was Scientology. They kept you from your husband. They they they, they made your husband out to be less. They, they that, don't do it wrong. Yeah, it can't, it's not them. It's yeah. it's it's you, Marie. Right? I mean, it can't be them. Yeah. And you know it's not you. Yeah. You know it's not you. No, I know that. Um, I know. Uh, yeah, and I found that, like, I don't know, maybe a week or two afterwards, and I was like, are you serious? Why? Uh, and then I was still on post at this point, but eventually just couldn't take it anymore. And that same person that did that investigation into me, wrote a knowledge report on me for abandoning my post. God. Which I ripped up in front of everyone <laughs> that was standing there while I read it, yeah. and I threw it on the floor. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, um, you described... Uh, hmm. um, I, I don't want you to go beyond what you're comfortable with. Um, but you described it. I'm pretty comfortable. Okay. <laughs> All right. You didn't know, but you walked right past them. Um. Yeah. Um, so, he, he had come home, and it was very weird, because uh, about two weeks before it had happened, Aaron had told me he wanted a divorce again. Um, and 
I was just like, are you kidding me? After all of this, are you serious? Like, oh, my God, come on. I, like, I've gone through this. I've proved that I will stay married to you. I've proved that, like, I'm in it for the long haul. I don't care about being close to it, and it's not what I want anyways. I, I want to stay married to you. Um, and... Oh, that's all we had time for today. So we've heard so far what it was like for Maria to grow up in Scientology, how that changes the relationship with your family members, with your parents, and how it affects when you meet your mate and you get married and how it affects the marriage. Uh, next week, the conversation uh, in part two gets a little bit tougher as we get more into these details that uh, Marie has just started to get into as I cut off the show. And uh, you see the fallout. Of what Scientology does, and uh, the you know everything to um, dealing with uh, the suicide of Aaron Poland to the uh, her mother and Aaron's mother doing smear videos, but hey, we'll cheer it up a little bit at the end with ten questions, and uh, hope to see you then. Until then, uh, please stay connected, and that about sums it up. See you next week. If I speak for your followers, and I speak for your ex-followers, and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mom and dad, don't talk to your mom and dad, that's bad, wrong. I remember sitting there wishing I could just scream out loud and beg for help. But I knew if I did that, I would never see Mark again. This is the thing about real life. You can't experience the great things without the bad things. I felt like it would probably do better off if we didn't exist. And, um, you know, Ted came up with a plan on, on how to end it. He talks about a seven-year-old child. Mm-hmm. Even, if, even if he's referring to actually an adult. So let's say we change that to an adult. There's a woman shudders because the man kisses her even passionately. The fact is that she shudders. You do a big apology to me and give me my kids back. I'm still shocked by the evil. Yes, even to this day. When I see a video of a former friend or family member, I'm like, this is pure evil at work.